John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was asking him to come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. And while he was still going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was still alive. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever, fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are uh, coming back into the Gospel of John after a brief break. And uh, just in time to make another break in a couple of weeks with uh, Resurrection Day uh, coming. Uh, also called Easter Sunday, but celebrate the resurrection in a peculiar way on uh, Resurrection Day, so, but um, coming back into John chapter 4 and looking at this miracle of Jesus healing the royal official's son, and as the title reflects uh, here, I I believe that the, the main focus in this section is on the royal official's faith, and uh, what the Lord is doing to uh, draw out and confirm and strengthen this royal official's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So that's the thrust, I believe, of the passage. That's where we're going. It's not merely about Jesus performing a miracle. It's not merely about Jesus healing this man's son. It's about this man's faith being strengthened and confirmed and in a greater way. So uh, I hope you can see that as we walk through it uh, this week and next week. And uh, find your own faith being drawn out and strengthened in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we we get started. Pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all trust and, and all of our faith. You have shown yourself faithful in so many ways. Lord, both personally in our own lives and in generations past. You have always shown yourself to be our God, our help in ages past, and our hope for years to come. Lord, we trust in you that you will keep us from the stormy blast and you will bring us safely to your eternal home. Lord, that's what we wait for. That's what we long for. And Lord, we come together to worship in the name of Jesus Christ so that 
we would be prepared to meet you in that final day of your glory uh, when Christ returns or if you call us home before then, that we would be ready to go. Lord, we come here to lift up uh, one heart and, and one voice and to magnify the one name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that's why we're here this morning. And uh, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would fill us with uh, new life, Lord, that you would revive our hearts in the truth and help us offer unto you a, a sacrifice of praise that's worthy of this great gospel by which we've been called. Lord, you've saved us out of our sin. You've saved us from an eternal death, and we ought to come here with, with more grateful hearts than what we do. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us of, of all the ways we are ne negligent in our walk with you. Lord, each one of us have, have things in mind from this past week that we know we know we're wrong. We know we, we were neglecting your will for us. We were not pursuing deeper and greater fellowship with you. Lord, we ask you to forgive us of those sins. And as we confess them to you, we confess in faith, Lord. We know that you are faithful and you are just to forgive any and every sin that we confess to you because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sin. And Lord, we pray that you would cleanse us from it, that you would remove its effect, that you would help us walk in uh, new holiness and righteousness in the week ahead. Or as we come to this passage, we, we ask that you administer to each one of our hearts in the way that, that, that only you can. Uh, there, there's no way that I can apply this word to the hearts of every single person here in the way that it needs to be applied. Lord, I don't have the wisdom to do that. I don't have the insight, but, but you do. You know where each one of us is. And, uh, one of the most comforting truths in Scripture is your declaration that you know you know, you know where we are. You know what's going on. So Lord, please, please take this word and, and, and drill it into our hearts and shape and fashion us so that we would be more conformed to the image of your beloved son. Lord, we pray for that grace and that blessing here this morning together. And we ask you to be with us now as we turn to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, yeah, so it's been a month since we were in the Gospel of John last. Uh, we took that break to discuss revival, and uh, in light of what was being called the Asbury Revival, we were discussing the nature of revival and how we would even recognize it if it did come. And uh, since we've spent a month doing that, as, as we come back into John, I want to start this morning just by giving a brief summary of where we were last time. Um, the last time we were in the Gospel of John, we were mainly looking at John chapter 4, verses 43 through 45. Um, and that's where we see Jesus leaving from his time with the Samaritans and coming into Galilee. And we noted that even though John 4.45 tells us that the Galileans received Jesus when he came, it was not because they were genuinely believing in him, Right? Mainly, the reason that they received Jesus when he came into Galilee was because they were enamored with his miracles that they had seen him do at the Passover feast in Jerusalem, right? So they were, 
their, their faith in Jesus was, was not a faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Their faith in Jesus was a faith in Jesus as a miracle worker. They were wowed by what Jesus could do. They were taken up by these great things that he was doing in their, in, in their, in their, uh, their own sight, in their own, in their own eyes. They were seeing Jesus do these marvelous things. And um, having faith in Jesus as a miracle worker. And the main problem with that kind of faith is simply that when the miracles stop, that kind of faith in Christ dries up, right? So if your faith in Jesus is, is, is strictly founded upon the miracles that Jesus can do and the great and wondrous things that you're waiting on him to do for you, if that's what your faith is resting upon, then when Jesus decides not to do that miracle or not to do that great work that you're expecting him to do, if he decides to do that, what's going to happen to your faith? The foundation is going to be taken out from underneath it and your faith is going to crumble. We were noticing just in light of that that true faith in Christ is not a faith that is fixated on Christ's miracles. It is a faith that can be encouraged by those miracles. It's a faith that can be strengthened by those miracles. But it's not a faith that is built upon those miracles. True Christian faith is built upon and focused upon the word of God. It's, and just to point out a fact, it's been that way from the very beginning of God's relationship with humanity. You remember in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, God spoke a word to Adam and Eve, and he expected that word to be enough for them to move forward in a life that glorified him in obedience. And the charge of God against Adam was that he listened to the voice of his wife rather than listening to the voice of God, right? So from the very beginning, God has established his relationship with humanity to be word-dependent, word-focused. And um, the Christian faith is a word-based faith, in other words. And we see that all throughout Scripture. James chapter 1, verse 18, the word of God is the very means that Christ uses to, to bring us into the faith. The Father causes us to be born again by his word, Right? Romans 10, 17, how is faith in Christ birthed within us? It's birthed within us by hearing the word about Christ, right? Or John 17, 17, Jesus tells us that the word is the, the means by which you and I are going to be made holy like the, like the Lord is holy. How are we going to be sanctified unto the Lord? It's through his word. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, where we find that the word is the main means that God uses to, to grow us up into all the fullness of our salvation. Which is why we are commanded by Peter and exhorted to long after that word, like, pure, like a baby longs after pure spiritual or uh, pure milk. Right? We're to long after that word because that's what God uses to grow us up into salvation. And if we will not believe in God's word, or take Jesus Christ at his word, as we saw last time, no amount of miracles will ever be enough to make us truly believe. You've noticed that before, right? If we won't take God at his word and we won't take Christ at his word, there's no amount of miracles that will ever, that will ever be enough to make us believe in Jesus. 
But Jesus says this, this very thing in Luke 16, 31, when he's uh, giving us the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man is in hell, and he's asking, he's begging Abraham, Abraham, please, at least send Lazarus to go talk to my brothers so that they will believe in him, and they won't, they won't come to this place of torment. And in the parable, Abraham turns back to to this rich man in hell, and he says, if they won't believe in Moses and the prophets, then they will not even be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. See, if you won't believe in the word of God as he's given it to us, if you won't build your life upon the word, no other miracle that God may give you is ever going to be enough to persuade you to believe that Jesus is true. I mean, think about about the scribes and the Pharisees. They knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. And what did they do with that knowledge? They paid the soldiers just to cover it up. Right. Christianity is a word-based faith. And and it's the miracle of the new birth that causes the power of the word to come in effect upon us. That's the miracle of being born again and the Holy Spirit ministering to us. When Jesus comes to Galilee and finds this kind of superficial faith in him, he he decides, he responds to that faith by withholding his miracles from these people. At least he does that for a time. And he gives them nothing but his word to test them and to see if his word or if his teaching will be enough for them, right? That's exactly what Jesus did with the Samaritans. Jesus didn't do any miracles among the Samaritans. He simply spoke to them the word of the kingdom of heaven. And that word was enough for them to believe. Would that be enough for these Galilean Jews? That's the question. Now with that recap, that summary, that's the backdrop of this miracle that Jesus performs at the end of John chapter 4. Jesus has come into this region where people have a a kind of faith in him, but it's a superficial faith. It's a faith that is built upon his miracles and Jesus as a wonder worker rather than Jesus as the true Messiah. Verse 46 of John chapter 4 introduces us to this royal official in Capernaum. And let me explain what that might mean. Um, For this man to be a royal official, it probably means that he was a member of the royal court of Herod Antipas. Um, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And he had inherited one-fourth of Herod the Great's kingdom and ruled over that, that region, and that region was Galilee. So that's, that's probably why this man was in Capernaum. Um, uh, Herod, if you care about this, I'm going to give you some details. Maybe, maybe you're interested in them as I am. Uh, I like these kinds of details. Herod was a, a tetrarch, which literally means he was just a ruler of a fourth of the kingdom. Um, He ruled over the region of Galilee, and then he had another region of Perea. And being that this was this uh, royal official was part of probably part of Herod's government, um, that would indicate to us that more than likely this man is is a Gentile. And the reason for that is because Herod's government was set up in Greek style. Uh, The political forms were all based on Greek culture and practice, and most of the Jews had disdain for Herod because of the way he operated within his government. So a royal official in his court, if this man truly is in the court of Herod Antipas, more than likely, he's a Gentile. Well, verse 47 tells us that that this man, uh, being at Capernaum, 
his son was sick at the point of death, and he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea and into Galilee. And he immediately went to Jesus in Cana, which is about 15 to 20 miles away from Capernaum. And he found Jesus and began imploring him to come to Capernaum to heal his son because his son was sick and at the point of death. Now, I think it's fascinating that a royal official in Herod's court already knew about Jesus and his miracles. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. This isn't isn't after three years, and, and it also proves to us that Jesus' work was not a work that was done in a corner. It wasn't a hidden thing that only a few people knew about. The entire region knew about what was going on with Jesus, right? Herod's court understands and knows that this man, Jesus, is, is supernatural and, and, and unique, right? So, so here's this royal official from the court of, of Herod, we believe, and along with all the other Galileans, he had heard about Jesus and all the miracles he had done, and he had enough faith to leave Capernaum and come to Cana in order to seek Jesus for help. His son was sick at the point of death, and this man knew by faith that Jesus was his only answer to his son's problem. So in faith, he seeks after Jesus, and Jesus responds to that faith by performing the second miracle that he did in Galilee, which was healing this man's son. Now, that's a general overview of what's happened in this passage. You probably got all of that or at least most of it, just in reading the passage. What I want to point out is the purpose behind Jesus doing this great work of healing this royal official son. As I've, as I've mentioned before, this sign at the end of John chapter 4 closes the, this section in the Gospel of John known as the Cana cycle, Right? So the Cana cycle begins in John chapter 2, where Jesus is in Cana at a wedding, and he changes water into wine, right? That's listed as Jesus' first sign that he did in Galilee. And here we have his second sign, which he performs in Galilee from Cana, which is the healing of this man's son. Now, John is highlighting these, these two signs for a reason, Right? These aren't just random placements of miracles that Jesus happened to perform in Galilee. What we're being told here is that these, so far, these are the only two signs that Jesus did in Galilee. All the other signs that he did were among the Jews at Jerusalem during the Passover. Why is John highlighting these specific miracles and putting them up to us as if they're really important to pay attention to? Well... I think it's because they not only manifest Christ's glory, right? It's glorious that he can command water to become wine. That's, that's, a, that's a glory that belongs to the creator alone, right? And here Jesus is magnifying the glory of him as creator, as divine, as, as deity. He's demonstrating his glory to, to his disciples. But then also, through these miracles, these specific miracles touch on the main purpose behind Jesus' miracles, It's not just to to wow people and to help people understand that he's somebody really unique. He has a specific purpose in mind in his miracles. And that's what I want to look at together today. So as we start, let's look at a few things that these two signs have in common. So the, the, the first sign that Jesus does at the wedding in Cana and this second sign that he does from Cana in healing this royal official son. Let's look at a few things that these two signs have in common. 
Number one, it's interesting that these two signs, while being done in Cana, both were largely done in secret. So we often think of Jesus' miracles as being done publicly and just openly, and everybody sees what's going on. But what you notice when you read these passages is that the majority of people had no idea about what Jesus had done. So with the wedding in Cana, right? John chapter 2, Jesus secretly changes water into wine. So secretive was he that not even the head waiter knew where the wine had come from. Now, there was a handful of people who did know, his disciples and the servants at the wedding. But other than that, no one else at the wedding knew what Jesus had done with the water and the wine, turning water into wine. So that though Jesus was manifesting his glory at that time, it wasn't for the sake of everyone in the room seeing that glory. And we see that same thing here in John chapter 4, verse 50. Jesus tells this man, go, your son lives. He does not come with the man down to Capernaum. The man came imploring Jesus, please, Lord, please come back with me to Capernaum and heal my son. If Jesus had done that, what would have happened? The whole crowd in Cana would have followed him down to Capernaum. And he would have been using his, his ability to perform miracles only to strengthen all the other people in a false faith. Right? A faith that was built on miracles and not built on who he was. So rather than going down with this man, he simply speaks the word and he says, go, your son lives. And the man in faith goes and finds it to be the case. And verse 53 tells us that the only people who knew that this sign had been accomplished was the man and his household. Right? So the man, the man knew that, that Jesus had healed his son, and the household knew that Jesus had healed his son, and they all believed in Jesus. So the first thing to notice is that though these signs were done in Cana and in relation to Cana with a lot of people around, for the most part, they were done in secret. Number two, that leads to our second observation here of how they're common, how they're, they uh, are like each other. Both signs were done mainly for the sake of believers. And this is really important to get. Not only were both signs largely done in secret, but also both signs were mainly done for the sake of believers. Again, the majority of people didn't see what Jesus had done. They didn't know. And in fact, even though everyone at the wedding in Cana benefited from what Jesus did, there were only a handful of people who actually knew what Jesus had done, right? We find that same thing again in John chapter 4, verse 53. As I just mentioned, uh, there was only a handful of people who knew that Jesus had healed this royal official son, and all of them were believing in Jesus, which leads to a third thing to notice about these two signs. You guys with me or am I putting you to sleep yet? You know I say that when I'm uncomfortable up here. I'm just going to be fully open and honest with you. You guys awake? Uh, I mean, seriously, are you with me? Or do I need to step up my volume a little bit? Or All right. That's coming, trust me. It's coming. All right? Yeah, I'll jump up and down. We'll get the pounding. We'll get the pounding out of the way. That's coming. So a third, a third way that these signs are, are like each other, a third thing that they have in common, and this is probably the most important thing to notice about them, is that Jesus performed both of these signs mainly as a means of increasing the faith of his disciples. 
So these were largely done in secret, primarily done for the benefit of believers, and the benefit that those believers gained from it was strengthened faith. All right? John chapter 2, verse 11, for example. It says, though, though everyone enjoyed the blessing of the best wine that Jesus had made, the main reason Jesus performed this sign was to manifest his glory so that his disciples would have greater and stronger faith in him. We see the same thing in John chapter 4. John 4, verse 47. Obviously, this royal official had enough faith in Jesus already to go seek Jesus out for help. He believed not only that Jesus could heal his son, but he also had a measure of faith that led him to believe that Jesus would be willing to heal his son. He comes to Jesus imploring him, as the NASB translates it. That's the, the Greek here is he's, he's coming to Jesus and he's asking over and over and over again, Lord, please come down and heal my son. You don't do that unless you think there's, there's even a chance that someone would be willing to come with you. This man had faith in Jesus when he came to Jesus. Verse 50 tells us that he had enough faith in Jesus to believe Jesus' word that he spoke to him. The man didn't have to see the miracle done in order to believe it. He believed that it would happen simply because Jesus spoke it. Jesus said, your son lives. And the man believed in the word and he went on his way. Isn't that marvelous? Amen. He's already believing. And then, notice verse 53. Right? So he's already believing in Jesus. He, had, he believed enough to come to Jesus. He believed enough to believe in Jesus' word. And now what do we find the result of his, of his obedient faith to the Lord Jesus Christ? What's the result of believing in Jesus already? It's, it's greater faith. It's strengthened faith in the Lord. Right? So, so here we find in John 4.53, he already believed in the word of Jesus enough to act upon it. And now whenever he sees the fullness of the result of Jesus' healing work in his son, it says not only did, did the man's faith increase, but also the entire house believed in Jesus Christ. That is, as a result of this miracle blessing, the man believed in Jesus even more. Now, in both of these situations, though the majority of people did not see or know what Jesus had done, both of these signs were still manifestations of his glory. And even though Jesus purposefully kept these signs hidden from the majority of people, he did these miracles in such a way that only his disciples would see and know what he had done with the result that their faith in him would be strengthened. Now, that's going to be really important. I think that that's a key to understanding what's going on with this royal official. But just as a side note of application here, realize that there is a glory about Jesus Christ. There is a glory and a beauty in Jesus that he only allows believers to see. There's a glory in Jesus that he does not let the world see, but he lets his disciples see. Right? I mean, that's Jesus told us as much in Matthew, right? Matthew 13, verse 11, Jesus said to his disciples who were asking him, Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? They don't understand what you're talking about. They're not seeing and getting what you're getting at. Why are you speaking to them? It's not helping them. 
Jesus says to them, To you it has been granted to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, to those who are outside, it has not been granted. Listen to the sovereignty of God there. The sovereignty of Christ Jesus in determining who will and who will not understand and receive the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. You see that same truth, by the way, uh, exemplified or, or magnified at the end of Matthew chapter 11, where, where Jesus is actually praising God because a large segment of people were not believing in him. Can, can you imagine praising God because people are not believing in, in Christ? Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for such was your good pleasure. That's why Jesus is praising the Father, because it was his good pleasure to do things this way. And then Jesus says, no one, can, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It's, it's our, our understanding of God, our, our, our ability to, to see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ is utterly dependent upon the will of God allowing that to happen. Paul, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says that exact same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. See, the reason that believers see the glory of God shining from the face of Jesus Christ is because God, by his power, has made that glory to shine in our hearts. If you are a believer here this morning, you are only a believer in Jesus Christ because God has awakened your heart to see the truth about Jesus. You didn't come to that conviction on your own. You didn't reason yourself into the kingdom. You were supernaturally awakened by the Spirit of God to be a child of God through Jesus Christ. That ought to encourage you. That ought to give you such great comfort in realizing that I only believe in Jesus because God came and made me believe first. I love Him because He made me see and understand that He loved me first. That's where assurance and comfort comes from in the Christian life. It doesn't come from our understanding or our perception of our own faithfulness. It's all resting on the sovereign God who is accomplishing his will and who will not fail in seeing that will accomplished. He who began a good work in us, he's going to complete that work in us until the day of Christ Jesus' glory, right? Now, my point here is simply to say that there is a glory of Jesus that the world does not get to see. Only believers get to see that glory. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians, just a couple verses before verse 6 in 2 Corinthians 4. Here in verses 3 and 4. He says, we go about preaching the gospel and even if, listen to this, even if our gospel is veiled, hidden, even if people don't see it, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, lest they see the glory of God in the face of Christ. The reason why the world doesn't see the glory of Jesus, in other words is because the God of this world blinds their minds and God has not moved with his sovereign power to awaken them to see it. 
That's the argument here in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. It's all dependent on the sovereign God working in our hearts. Now, here's why I bring this out. Because that's the case, believer, I want you to listen to me. If you are hoping in Christ, I want you to listen to me, especially in light of the world that you and I are living in right now. This world of speculation and doubt, this world of fear, this world that's trying to get us to to disbelieve in the reality of our Savior. You need to hear this. Because this is how God awakens sinners to the reality of Christ, you don't need to let yourself be discouraged when the world doesn't see Christ's glory. The world is blind to the glory of Christ. Unbelievers don't see it because they can't see it. They love their sin too much. They're not delivered from the idol of self yet. That pillar of self has not been whacked out from underneath them, and they have not yet collapsed into the glorious hands of Jesus as their Savior. But you have had that happen to you if you're a believer. You don't need to let the speculation of the world strip from your own conscience the the sense of glory that God has enabled you to see. We can't let the unbelieving world's inability to see the glory of Christ shake our confidence and our hope in what we, by God's grace, have been enabled to see. We've got to hold fast to this and not let the doubt of the world intrude upon our faith. Deuteronomy 4.9, that same exhortation that God gave to the Israelites applies to us just as much. Right? We must take heed to ourselves and, and keep our souls diligently so that we don't forget what God has enabled us to see. If you're a Christian and a believer in this room, you need to take heed. You need to guard your heart zealously because that's that's where the springs of life flow, right? They flow from your heart. You're to guard your heart diligently and and hold fast to what God in his grace has made known to you. And don't let the doubt and the speculation of the world intrude upon that faith. The world doesn't see Christ. We, We can't expect them to see Christ. And more than that, we can't without the power of God. And more than that, we can't build our faith upon whether or not other people believe in Jesus. We've got to know Jesus for ourselves. There are no secondhand dealings with God in, 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 in our Lord Jesus Christ. You are either brought to know him personally or you don't yet know him. Right? So... So there's a glory of Jesus Christ that only believers are allowed to see. And we see that right here in these two miracles that Jesus is performing in in Cana and in relation to Cana. So alongside Christ's goal of, of manifesting and unveiling his glory through this sign, his other primary goal was to draw out, refine, and strengthen this man's faith in him. That's, that's my thesis. That's what I'm arguing for in this passage. I believe that is what this passage is primarily about. God, Christ, strengthening this man's faith in him, drawing it out so that it can be more fully expressed and strengthened as a result. And I think we see that when we pay attention to the three main parts of this interaction between Jesus and this royal official. So there are three main parts of this interaction. Today we're only going to look at one. We have to come back next week to finish this out, okay? 
But in these, in these parts, these segments of the interaction between Jesus and this royal official, we see what Jesus is beginning to do in this man's life. And we can learn from that and understand that Jesus functions in our lives the exact same way. So, so the first one we're going to look at, the first part of this interaction between Jesus and this man. Notice, first of all, how Jesus responds to this man's request. So this man comes to Jesus. He's making a request of Jesus. How does Jesus respond to that request? Notice verse 48. Jesus says to him, I'm on my way. Let's go. Let me get my stuff and I'm coming. Nope. Jesus responds to him by saying, man, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe, will you? Now, offhand, Jesus' response to this man's request can feel a little jarring. Uh, even insensitive, right? Lacking compassion and grace. I mean, this man has just rode all morning or all night, depending on how you want to understand the time reference here. This man has just rode 15 to 20 miles over rough terrain. He has frantically searched Cana in order to find Jesus and he comes down to Jesus hoping that Jesus is going to receive him and when he comes asking Jesus to come heal his son, it's like Jesus gives him a stiff arm. In his moment of desperation, it seems as though Jesus is rebuking him for even asking him to do such a thing. Why are you asking me to come heal your son? Won't you believe? Are you, will you only believe if I heal your son? In fact, what's interesting here is that in this verse, the verbs in this verse are plural verbs. So Jesus isn't just speaking directly to the man. He's talking about everybody around them, right? So it's, it's, it's clear from the tense of these verbs in Greek that Jesus is lumping this man in with the rest of these uh, thrill-seeking, miracle-wanting, uh, miracle-craving Galileans. He's lumping him in with all the rest. And basically, he's looking at the man and he's saying, you're just like all the rest, aren't you? You won't believe in me unless I do this miracle for you. Is that right? Now, what is Jesus doing in interacting with this man like that? Is he really rebuking this man for seeking Jesus to help his son, to come heal his son? Is Jesus really rebuking him for that? Or, or maybe it's worse than that. Has Jesus actually misinterpreted or misread or misunderstood what this man is seeking? Is that what happened? No, obviously that's not what happened. John chapter 2, verse 23 and 25, or 24 and 25. It tells us that Jesus doesn't need anybody to tell him about any other man because he himself knows what's in every man. He can see right through us. He can peer into our hearts. He knows what's true on the inside. He doesn't need anyone else to bear witness about it. So Jesus wasn't confused about this man. He wasn't mistaken about the truth of what this man was seeking. Just like you and I, Jesus knew his heart and he could see right through him. So what is Jesus doing? 
Well, based on how we find Jesus interacting with other people in the Gospels, I think what we can say safely is that, okay, first of all, Jesus wasn't mistaken about him. And the question was not denying the fact that this man had faith in Jesus. However, as you and I know, even true faith in Jesus still needs to be refined. Even true faith in Jesus needs to be purified. Even true faith in Jesus needs to be distinguished from the false faith that manifests in relation to Jesus. And the way that Jesus chose to, to do that, the way, he, the way he chose to purify this man's faith and refine it and distinguish it from, from all the other false faiths around them, was to appear on the surface as if he was refusing to answer his request. So Jesus wasn't just being mean. He wasn't simply accusing or rebuking this man. As the rest of this account makes clear, Jesus had a plan to heal his son. But there was something more important that Jesus was getting at than just the healing of his son. I agree with uh, Herman Ritterboss's comments on this in his commentary on the Gospel of John. Just listen to what he said. I, it doesn't look very good. I, I ran out of time. I didn't have much time to make this as presentable for you guys as I wanted. Hopefully that's all right. Herman Ritterboss comments. He says, at first blush, Jesus' response in verse 48 seems to be hard and to ignore the true faith that the man placed in his miraculous power. But... Even in the heart-rending situation in which the royal official came to him, Jesus was not content simply to heal the man's son. That's, that's a hard pill to swallow. That Jesus would not simply be content to heal the man's son. He has something greater and something more important that he's getting to in this man's life. Ruderboss goes on, he says, his seeming harshness was aimed at not letting the man and his entire household remain stuck halfway on the road of faith. In other words, he goes on to say, this was not so much an accusation leveled against the man, but rather it was a challenge brought to the man. So what we see in Jesus' response to this man in verse 48 is not the result of misunderstanding him or, or simply laying a charge against him that his faith was false and just like everyone else's. What we see here is how deeply concerned Jesus is to build up and refine this man's faith. Did you know that's Jesus' main concern in your life? Is that you would have true and genuine faith that shines out gloriously on the day of his return. See, this is, what we have here in John 4 is an amazing glimpse into the lengths that Jesus will go in order to purify and perfect faith in the lives of his people. Here, here this man comes to Jesus talking about his son. He's not talking about his servant. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about his son. And you in here who have children, you know the preciousness of your children. You know the heartache that, that wells up inside of you when your children are going through something that you are utterly powerless to deal with. This man's not coming to Jesus in pretense. 
He's coming to Jesus because he has a burden on his heart for his child. And Jesus is the only one who's able and might be willing to help him. He's pleading with Jesus. He continues to implore Jesus to come heal him. And Jesus basically pauses for a moment and he asks, is your faith like everyone else's faith here? Will you only believe in me? Will you only trust in me if I heal your son? What if I choose not to heal your son? Will your faith remain? Beloved, that question touches each one of us in this room, doesn't it? In how many ways does Jesus confront us with this same question, this same challenge in our own lives? Now, as we're going to see with this royal official, Jesus has a plan to answer his request, right? He's going to heal this man's son. But you and I, need to reckon with the fact, we need to recognize that sometimes Jesus doesn't give us what we're asking for. And I think we need to understand the reason behind that. Jesus' primary concern in our lives is not to give us everything that we are asking him to give us. Jesus' primary concern in our lives is our spiritual well-being. And you know what? Many of the things that you and I ask Jesus to do for us, even things that appear to be good on the surface, many of the things we ask him to do for us are actually not for our spiritual benefit in the end. And the only way to perfect our faith in Jesus and guard us from becoming deceived by our own perception of what's best for us, the only way to guard us from that is to withhold what we're asking. That's hard, right? That's hard when when the Lord doesn't give you that house that you think would be good for you. That's hard when he doesn't give you the job that you're asking him to give you. That's really difficult when he doesn't give you that spouse that you're praying for. Or maybe he gives you the spouse that you didn't ask for. Right? Amen. Right, Marie? Yeah. Praise God he doesn't give you the spouse you're asking for, because that would be no benefit to you. Sorry, Jamie. <laughs> Let's not push that too extremely here. <laughs> Jesus doesn't give us even the spouse we're asking for. Maybe when the Lord doesn't keep us from experiencing disaster and suffering. When he doesn't keep us from disease, or heal us from cancer, or save family and friends. Or even as some of us in this room have experienced, when he doesn't heal our children. It's hard. There are a whole slew of situations and a myriad of ways that life doesn't go according to our wishes and our desires. There are, very, there are a vast number of ways where Jesus doesn't give us what we're asking him to give us. How are we supposed to think about that? 
How should we think about situations where the Lord chooses not to give us what we're asking for? Well, beloved, I believe it is especially important in moments like that for you and me to keep in mind that our Lord Jesus will go to great lengths and spare no expense to protect us from the dangers and deceptions of a false faith. Jesus will go to great lengths, and he will spare no expense in making sure that our faith in him is genuine and is refined. Even if it means exercising hard love that withholds what we're crying out for, something good, in order to give us something better, something great. So, for example, we're coming to an end here, so stay with me. But, for example, we pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. What are we asking the Lord to do? We're asking to provide for our daily needs, right? Give us food. Give us clothing. Give us shelter. We'll be content with that, Lord. Let me ask you this question. How how often do Christ's people suffering in the world go without food? How many times have believers in history starved to death because they're being oppressed and persecuted? Was Jesus unfaithful to them in withholding this prayer request that he himself taught us to pray? Jesus told us, pray. Pray that the Lord gives you bread daily. Manifest your daily dependence on Jesus, on your heavenly Father. What are we supposed to think about whenever he doesn't come through on something like food? Maybe like the Israelites in the wilderness. You know, Jesus will always keep his word. He will, he will fulfill his word to us. But maybe he's going to fulfill that word to us in ways that we don't expect, in ways that we're not even asking. Like the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8, right? Verse 3, he fed them with manna, food they didn't know. <laughs> It even says here that he let them go hungry so that they would learn, they would come to understand that man does not live by bread alone, but only by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. How else would we learn that lesson without Jesus withholding some of those blessings from us to teach us in our sensed need and lack that God is enough for us in that moment? If he's constantly feeding us with everything our hearts desire, when would we ever come to realize that he is more than enough for us in every circumstance we'll face? This is what Paul said in Philippians 4. I have learned the secret of being content. I know how to have plenty and I know how to have lack. I have learned how to face every single challenge with my Lord Jesus Christ, he who strengthens me. We don't, learn, we don't learn how to be content in lack unless we're actually experiencing lack. Or, or maybe we pray, again, with the Lord's Prayer, Lord, deliver us from evil. And he will ultimately be faithful to that request. He will deliver the entire world of every, every expression of evil. But answering that prayer 
that the Lord would deliver us from evil in the present sometimes means allowing evil to afflict us so that we will be kept from a greater evil in the future. So, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, the Apostle Paul says that because of the great visions that were given to him, these great revelations of glory, there was also given to him a messenger of Satan. Now, most people chalk this up to some physical ailment that Paul was suffering from. I don't believe that. Because this is a messenger of Satan who has come to torment Paul. This is a spiritual Uh, uh, spiritual elements of suffering that is being brought upon him that is, yes, inflicting, inflicting his flesh, but its primary concern is dealing with the spiritual realm. This messenger of Satan was given to him. And then it says in verse 8, concerning this affliction, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might take this away. Now, and you gotta you gotta keep this in mind of Paul, the zealous apostle. Right? This isn't just like in the morning for one second he says, you know, Lord, it'd be really nice if you took this affliction away. But whatever, whatever you will, I'm going to go on with my day. It's not like he, play, he prayed that three days in a row and that was it. No, this is Paul pleading with the Lord, setting apart an extended season of fasting and prayer, asking God, please remove this from me. Verse 9, what's Jesus' answer? No. No, I will not deliver you from this messenger of Satan because I'm trying to teach you something greater. I'm trying to teach you that my promise to you is firm and my grace will be sufficient for you in every circumstance you face. The only way to find that out is to go through difficult circumstances. It's especially in moments when the Lord doesn't answer our prayers or seemingly answer our prayers yet, at least not in the way that we would expect. It's in those moments that we need to remember and preach to our own hearts the truth that Christ's grace is and always will be sufficient for us in every moment. Every moment. Every moment of disappointment and every moment of loss, Jesus remains our great shepherd. And we will have no lack. In every moment of disappointment and loss, even in the valley of the shadow of death, we will find the sufficiency of Christ's grace meeting us. Nothing will ever be able to pluck us out of his hand or separate us from his love. He will never abandon us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that in every moment of your life you can count on the fact Jesus isn't going to leave you? He's not going to abandon you there. He's died for you. He shed his blood for you. He rose again from the dead for you. He intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father. He pleads for the Father's grace and mercy to be dumped out lavishly upon you. Do you think he's going to abandon you at any moment in your life? Don't you trust in his love more than that? Don't you believe him when he says, I gave my life as a ransom for you? Jesus has made a pledge to us with his own sufferings in our place, and he has sealed that pledge with his own blood. Guaranteed it in his resurrection. There is no amount of loss 
that you and I will ever experience that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And so we can face opposition boldly, guys. We can face persecution with a full heart, knowing that God will be with us as we walk through it. We can bury our loved ones in hope, knowing that God will be with us to comfort us through that loss. He who who gave up his own son knows what it is to lose. And in our suffering, he is enough for us. So if our Lord determines that it's best for us not to get what we're asking for him to give, then in every trial and difficulty, we can humble ourselves before him. And with patience, we can wait upon him to do his greatest work in our lives, which is perfecting our faith. Count it all joy, brethren, when you undergo trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Let it have its perfect work so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It takes a lot of faith to let God do that kind of work in our lives. Whatever it costs, Lord, whatever affliction is necessary, perfect my faith in you. I trust you. I believe in you. You will not be, you will not leave me alone or abandon me in the midst of the trial. You'll walk with me through it. You will give me grace to face that trial with you. We ought to believe in him, guys. As I've already said, sometimes it's for our good not to give us what we're asking for. And even though we can't see it right now, the day's coming when we will see it. We don't understand all the ways of God in dealing with us right now, but the day's coming, beloved, where we are going to see it. We're going to see the purpose behind it all. And on that day, it'll be enough. It'll be enough. So at times... Christ doesn't give us what we're asking for, but at other times, he does give us what we're asking for. As we see with this royal official, there are other times where even the hesitancy of Jesus to give us what we're asking him to give us or to answer our prayers, even that becomes the very means by which Christ is going to answer our prayer request. Does that that make sense? You follow me there? Sometimes he doesn't give us what we're asking. Sometimes he does. And when he decides to give us what we're asking, sometimes he uses his aloofness. He uses his his posturing of stiff-arming to encourage us to seek him all the more because that's the means he's going to choose to give us what we're asking. Because that is what draws out of us greater expressions of the kind of faith that he is pleased to bless. And that's what we see with this man, this royal official in John 4. And we're going to return to that next week. Okay. All right. Let's pray together. Lord, I I do ask that you would uh, comfort our hearts. You are the God of all comfort and mercy. Would you comfort our hearts as we wrestle with you?
and think through the things that you have withheld from us, things that we have asked for. Some of those things we still don't understand why you wouldn't give them to us, Lord, but give us grace to believe in you and to trust your promise that you will be enough for us. Your grace is sufficient. Your power is perfected in our weakness, Lord, and, uh, and our faith is refined through the trials we face. Lord, we, we do pray that you administer to our hearts with this word and help us live lives that are more fully expressive of the kind of faith that you love to bless. And where we stumble, where we fall, where we are weak, Lord, we, we trust that you are enough for us even there. Where we don't understand, where we don't understand, you call us to be still and to know, stop striving and to know that you are God. You will be exalted in the earth, you will be exalted among the nations. Lord, what more could we desire than for our God to be exalted in the earth? That's what we pray for. That's what we wait for. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here a benediction from Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. We pray that the Lord will help us grow in our understanding of that reality, that no matter what we face in the week ahead, this afternoon even, Christ is enough, and we can walk through it with him. Amen. Father, we pray that you would be with us and teach us that truth. Lord, we know that there's only one way to learn that truth, and that is to go through these various circumstances. So in times of prosperity, may we not turn our back to you and fail to give thanks. Lord, in times of want and lack, may we not sin against you by complaining or grumbling. Lord, may we be content and rest in you and walk with you by faith through this life. We sojourn with you, Lord, and we long for our heavenly home to come. So we pray, Lord Jesus, bring it. In your time, bring it. And until then, we labor on. In your name, amen. amen. May you go in peace.